and welcome to Insurance Today, brought to you by Allianz Insurance. This podcast will look at some of the issues causing a bit of a buzz within the insurance industry right now. Listeners may well have heard our Insurance Tomorrow podcast, hosted by Nick Hewer from The Apprentice and now Countdown. If you haven't heard those podcasts, just search Insurance Tomorrow in your usual podcast app. The Insurance Tomorrow series has been so popular that we thought let's extend the concept to look at what's going on in today's world of insurance. So for this very first Insurance Today podcast, I'm taking the role of host. I'm Mark Bishop, and I've worked in the insurance industry for more than 20 years now, first at the ABI and now Allianz. I'm joined by three of my colleagues. John Berry is a director at Allianz, responsible for pricing and underwriting in personal lines. My second guest is Jerry Ross, who was recently appointed head of Commercial Motor. And my final guest is Nick Kelsall, our fraud claims manager. Nick should need no introduction because of his starring role in the BBC Claimed and Shame series that sets out to expose insurance fraudsters. We're looking at three issues that have become high profile recently, namely the suggestion that insurers must work uh, with the repair sector to keep it from declining. We'll also be looking at the launch of the Insurance Fraud Hub with Nick. And finally, the recent update from the Competition and Markets Authority on the issue of dual pricing. So let's get started. Now, Jerry, this is strong stuff about repairers um, and the insurance industry um, needing to work together. What, what's exactly going on? It was a recent um, article, I think, in the, following an insurance seminar about um, the relationship between insurers and the repairers being dysfunctional. And for me, this was just looking at the value chain and covering two sides to every story. But actually here, there's three sides in that the vehicle manufacturers also have a role to play. And I think this is just making sure that customers get the best outcomes from uh, getting a repair across um, from engaging with an insurer, a repairer and the vehicle manufacturer. Right. So, I mean, how much is this an issue then about the need for insurers to to manage down claims costs, do you think? Well, I I come from a commercial background and our fleet insurers, their pricing is based on their claims experience. And the better we insurers can handle their claims costs, the better it is for our clients. So I think everyone's got an interest in us managing claims costs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, the importance of, of trying to keep premiums down for customers, absolutely. So do you see there becoming a time when, when motor manufacturers repair their own vehicles? Um, and if that is the case, what does that mean for the independent repairer? Well, I think when we look at some of the trends in continental Europe, more and more of the lease providers are selling a, a bundled package where they want to sell the vehicle plus insurance and the servicing. And with the complexity of the vehicles, sometimes the manufacturers, you know, they're struggling to keep up with the pace of change. So on that more complex vehicles, I think they will end up with the vehicle manufacturers more often. Right. OK. So the independent repair network is it's probably right for them to be concerned about their Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's right for them to think about how they uh, keep relevant and current with the changes and but but I did make the point in 2030 75% of vehicles are still going to be internal combustion engines and they're going to need to go somewhere so I think I think it's right for everyone to focus on up, up in their skills to keep up with the pace of change yeah and if you're if you're a customer on, you know, on the outside looking into this, I mean, I suppose that, that the most important thing for them is they want to get their cars repaired quickly and as cheaply as possible. And again, we've already mentioned this, but the issue about keeping the, the cost down too. Yeah, and, and I think for them that if you're if you're living in Land's End and you've got a Tesla, then I don't know how far you're going to have to go to get it fixed, but that, that is going to you know, have an impact on fixing claims. 
I think, Jerry, one of the, the things that, that strikes me is with these sort of new ACE technologies, as you describe, and advanced driver assistance systems, um, you know, the manufacturers are getting better at stopping accidents in the first place. But then when you do have an accident, because there's all these sensors kind of all around the exposed parts of the vehicle, it, it, it must cost more. So is, is there a kind of a some sort of, some sort of conflict there between the... Um, the reduction in accidents but the increased cost I, f- I think there's a uh, time lag so at the moment we would probably see if a vehicle's got um, emergency braking and stops quite quickly and the car behind hasn't the car behind's going to be responsible and they're potentially going into the back of a vehicle that's got lots of expensive kit in and it's going to cost more but in time the vehicle that stopped didn't go into the back of someone potentially causing an injury claim so it's just going to take a while so own damage and third party damage claims will probably increase in the short term but hopefully in the longer term that will be offset by reductions in injury claims and hopefully deaths and that's mm-hmm. that, that, that's a positive step. Do you have any idea for how long it will take to kind of reach that equilibrium of all the vehicles on the road having the right kind of technology to, for this to sort of even itself out? Um, I, I'm not sure. I don't think they, they ever will because people like, like choice, don't they? And if I wanted to go and drive my nice Porsche and I'm not really going to be wanting to get a new, safe, exciting vehicle because I like driving my exciting Porsche. But, so I think there will always be a mix of vehicles on the road and that's something that we just have to contend with. So if you were sitting opposite uh, an independent repairer now who was looking to the future and, and thinking... You know, what do I what do I need to do to make sure that I've got a viable business that's uh, relevant in ten years time? What would be your advice then? What would you say you need to be doing this and thinking about this? I think they just need to focus on how that they're keeping alive to the new trends coming through. I know Fatchum spend time looking at the vehicles that are coming in and how they're repairing, and it's just making sure that they're they're able to repair electric vehicles. There's a different skill set to that than there is to fixing the traditional combustion engine. So, I think it's just it's just making sure that the people that they're bringing into their business have got development journeys that allows them to evolve as a mechanic hmm. thanks very much Jerry. just just ask yeah, um, Jerry so we're seeing these advancements in terms of driverless technology um, where do you think the future lies in terms of access to data so in the claimed landscape we're seeing um, it's being increasingly difficult to validate claims and, 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 and identify fraud um, because there's so much data in these vehicles but we can't get access to that data um, which is causing us a, an issue when you see these new technologies and where these new technologies are being used. For example, um, this, this technology now for, for, for lane assistance, which is meant to be used only on motorways. Um, but if people are using that on a roundabout and then potentially pursuing a claim, it falls into misuse rather than negligence. And we don't necessarily ensure for misuse and abuse. So do you see any advancements in data sharing or is the industry doing anything with manufacturers around that? I think for me this is about um, how the industry works with the government as we evolve the Road Traffic Act, as we move from um, vehicles being um, driven by an individual to actually being the driver becoming a passenger and it's important that the data sharing is allowed so that we can find out was it a problem with the technology, was the technology working as it should or actually was someone should have had their hands on the vehicle and they didn't. So if, for me, I think this is about getting the right legislation that in place that allows the involvement of this technology into vehicles going forward. Um, the, the Approved Repairer Network, I think they've got a role to play because they'll be able to see where vehicles are operating if the emergency braking has worked or hasn't worked and they'll be able to help feed in to ensure which vehicles are, are performing well under those um, real-life tests. 
And, and do you think the relationship is, is a positive and strong one between the manufacturers and the insurance industry? Are we all pushing in the same direction when it comes to data and where the responsibilities are going to lie? I've, I think um, that the vehicle manufacturers have got a role to play in, in sharing this because everyone wants to have access to the data and uh, I think they've, they've got a greater role to focus on repairability of vehicles and sharing the data that the vehicles generate. Thanks, Jerry. So, Nick, the launch of the new Insurance Fraud Bureau's Fraud Hub. Tell us about this. Yeah, so uh, this is an initiative by um, the, the, the IFB, as you've said, um, and this is um, a vehicle now where insurers will be able to share um, suspicious fraud data. Um, so historically, we've had what's called the IFR Hub, which is effectively what we classify as black data. So if you're a proven fraudster, you'll go onto a blacklist effectively and the industry's got access to that information. What the IFI hub is, um, is um, what we call grey data, so where there's suspicious data, um, but we haven't got a proven fraud conviction. Um, and what the industry is doing, um, and Alliance, I'm pleased to say, was one of the first major insurers um, to sign up to this, um, phase one and launch one, um, is we're sharing um, data more widely as an insurance industry, and therefore, if Alliance is investigating a suspicious fraudster, um, but we haven't quite got the evidence um, to, to, to get that over the line. Um, it may be that we can collaborate with our colleagues, uh, uh, other insurers, um, and therefore collectively we can try and stamp out that fraud and identify that fraud. Um, Alliance has always had the view that we shouldn't see our fraud as a competitive advantage. We think that fraud is a, a problem for society and that we should be working together to stamp that out, um, which is why, again, I'm pleased to say that we were one of the first major insurers to sign up to uh, to the hub. And what I was a bit puzzled about is what's the difference in between the hub and the claims underwriting exchange Q, which has been around for for quite some time. So, is it, what is the difference between the two systems? So, the underwriting and, and, and Q effectively is more aimed at claims history, so that, that's an indicator. So effectively you can look at if someone's had seven claims, that might be an indicator for fraud. Whereas the IFI hub is specifically aligned to um, fraudulent activity. Um, and it may be that you have a fraudster in a certain area. Um, and the idea is that we can start to then develop some more sophisticated analytics off the back of that. So where you've got big data, um, we can try and start to do some trend analysis um, and the IFB will do this uh, around predicting what future fraudsters may look like. Um, so the idea here is that you're spotting the first opportunistic fraudster of the future uh, before they're already on a record in the past, if that makes sense. Wow, that sounds pretty impressive stuff. And, and, I, and I think for me the Q, Q focuses on the claims side, but the fraud isn't just about claims. We're seeing more and more fraudsters trying to just get their vehicles onto the MID. So these are like people involved in serious crime and they just want their vehicle to pass an APRN check so that they can carry on on their way. If they've got guns, drugs in the car, they're just clear to go. So they're spending more and more time focusing on getting, how do they get a fleet policy out just to get the vehicles on the MID. Yeah, because that's one of the issues, isn't it? It's not just about insurance fraud costing the insurance industry. Actually, a lot of the, of the proceeds of these, of these frauds and a lot of the activities associated with those frauds actually is really serious crime, isn't it? Yeah, and these guys are really organised. We, we see some of the stuff. They know what our question sets are when they're, we're going through our quote process. They'll provide information that looks plausible, but only if you scratch the surface or you have an illegitimate company providing a legitimate company's company reference number because they know we check that, so they'll give us one that just gets through the system. 
I think what we see with with fraud often, Nick, is that it, it kind of moves around different markets and even different products within within the markets. So I guess whilst this is a great step forward in, in the development of this new hub, does it does it only cover certain lines of business or does it cover all insurance products? So it covers all insurance products, which is which is a significant step forward. So the IFB was primarily created to tackle motor fraud, motor claims fraud. Um, and I'm pleased to say, I would, we haven't stamped that out in its entirety, um, but at Alliance, um, our fraud in the motor claim space is about 5% of, of our total fraud, um, and, and casualty now is 25%, and that's a significant shift over the last sort of five years. Um, I think the important point that you raised, Jerry, is, 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 is interesting around also tackling sort of the front end application fraud at the point of quote. Um, and Alliance took the decision to join our claims and application fraud teams together um, at the beginning of this year. Um, and that I think is a really positive step for us. Um, the idea behind that is that you're using your claims trends and the themes that you're seeing in claims fraudulent activity, which you can then apply at the front end to try and prevent that fraudster ever being on our books in the first instance. So do you think that, you know, the, when is the industry going to get on top of this as, as, as an issue and make fraud virtually impossible for anyone to perpetrate? Are we, are we getting closer to that? We talked about the claims and shame series. I think fraud, insurance fraud, is certainly quite high profile amongst the public and, and you know, they realise that it's a, a serious crime. Do you think the industry is coming close to saying we've really nailed the issue of insurance fraud? Uh, it's a difficult question to answer that, I think, Mark. In, it's like saying, will crime ever be a thing of the past? Um, and, and I think the answer is no, because people evolve and, 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 and try new things. I, I suppose what I would say is that the industry is a lot more sophisticated now. So if you are looking to pursue insurance fraud, there's a good chance that you will be caught um, and we've got sophisticated measures. So in answer to your question, we're, we're making progress, um, but I think more can be done. Um, and I think it does take... Um, bigger players to come to the table. Um, we're obviously a very strong voice at Alliance and will be an even stronger voice in 2020 with LV um, and legal in general. Um, so um, we should be near the top of the, tr- the food chain in terms of trying to drive that, that right behaviour to tackle the problem. Mm. And can brokers get involved with the IFP hub? Uh, at the moment, brokers won't have direct access um, uh, for, for a, f- a few reasons, really. It's, it's an IFB product, um, so only members of the IFB um, currently have access. Um, that said, we're doing a lot of work with brokers um, around conveying the, the positive message that this, this, this hub does give the industry. Um, and obviously, Alliance being um, an insurer and, and one of the first signatories to this, um, brokers will see benefits in us tackling insurance fraud, which will feed into more positive pricing. Great. Thanks very much, Nick. That's really, uh, really useful. Um, and finally, John, the, the Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, um, already published its response to the Citizens Advice Bureau's super complaint on what's been called the loyalty penalty, or perhaps as we better know it in the industry, dual pricing. Recently, uh, it also published an update on progress against its recommendations. The story was positioned as the CMA saying businesses were not doing enough to protect loyal customers from unfair pricing. Can you summarise what the situation is for us? I'll do my best, Mark. There are there are a number of uh, bodies involved in this, so um, there's quite a sort of a uh, an alphabet soup of uh, of acronyms associated with those bodies. But um, yes, this is a uh, a situation and a story that's been ongoing for quite some time. The Citizens Advice Bureau raised a super complaint last September um, about what it termed the loyalty penalty, um, and they weren't just looking at, at insurance; they were also looking at things like utilities, 
broadband um, mortgages and, and, and other things. Um, so the most recent development that you described, Mark, is the Competition and Markets Authority, who, who, whose role it is to respond to this super complaint from the Citizens Advice Bureau. Uh, they've, they've come out, um, having been supported by the government in the action that they've taken so far in putting pressure on, on the regulators to um, tackle um, this issue in those markets. Um, and they have sort of given greater impetus and encouragement to the to the FCA, which I suppose is the, the primary regulator in the context of pricing and customer outcomes in insurance, uh, to continue with their um, with their ongoing study into into fair pricing. And what is the current situation with with the FCA's study? When are we going to hear some more about that? So the FCA uh, last October undertook um, to uh, to start a thematic review into motor and, and household in insurance pricing. So this would be retail or, or personal lines uh, motor pricing rather than the, the, the commercial business that Jerry looks after. Uh, and they've done an, sort of an enormous um, data survey of insurers and brokers. No less than 81 questions were asked, sort of generating huge volumes of data in response to the FCA's questions around pricing practices and, and, and so on. And the, the present situation is that the industry is awaiting for uh, the FCA's interim report that will describe their findings. So uh, we're expecting that during the summer, uh, and then the final report will be due towards the end of the year. I know we, we probably shouldn't speculate, but indulge me for a second. I mean, what, what could the implications be coming out of the FCA's report for the industry? I, th- I think that's a, a that's the million million dollar question mark. So um, there could be a number of different outcomes, and it it is it is a bit difficult to speculate. But um, certainly, it's, it's something that we track um, within Alliance very closely. Um, in, out in the market, you hear the um, equity analysts have got a keen interest in this because, of course, it could influence the long term profitability of insurers in the market. So, um, if I use them as an example, some of the things that they're saying. Um, are that um, the FCA might follow up with with another letter to chief executives of insurers and brokers, um, making clearer what their I suppose what their findings are and what their demands are for change. Now those are likely to be in the context of, of vulnerable customers in particular in the household market, or they could be around um, publishing um, the extent of differences on a product by product basis of renewal versus new business pricing. Um, that would be, uh, I suppose, a fairly, uh, in, in one sense, uh, a, a relatively simple outcome. Other outcomes um, could be uh, finding ways of holding um, senior managers of brokers and insurers um, to a, a higher level of accountability around standards um, that already exist or maybe defined around the context of pricing. Um, other things that have been discussed include uh, the idea of a, a price cap, um, such as been applied in the energy markets. Um, but of course, uh, it's very difficult to see how that that could that could that could help in the insurance market, given that. Uh, you know, if you've got a customer who lives in a, a flood zone um, in a high theft risk area with poor domestic security, you'd expect them to be paying a higher premium um, than somebody who, who doesn't have any of those features. So price cap feels like it, it, it probably won't be the appropriate um, outcome. I mean, I mean, people talk about, uh, 
you know, would it make sense for the industry to do away with any kind of differential between renewal and new business price? And I think um, the challenge with that is uh, the unintended consequences. So uh, many insurers will um, have introductory discounts. Now, if they're not allowed to offer introductory discounts, then maybe people on lower incomes who shop around to benefit from those deals each year won't be able to um, and will have to pay a higher price. Uh, and in some cases, they may not be able to afford that. So it's a, it's a really complex topic, uh, and, and, and the industry awaits the, uh, the FCA's feedback over the summer and later in the year. I think the, the thing that, that, that you see most frequently in terms of people's feedback is the annoyance of getting a renewal quote, then you threaten to leave and go to a competitor, but then you can ring up and they'll, they'll match that reduced number um, and I think that's the frustration for customers that I see I, I would agree that that's a that's a common frustration and it's it I think the regulator is particularly interested in the context of vulnerable customers so how do we as an industry ensure fairness um, it, when, when some customers may not be as engaged with the renewal process um, and, uh, and and able to sort of make that telephone call and have the confidence to have a bit of a negotiation around renewal, and um, so that that certainly is something that is being um, being being discussed within brokers, within insurers, um, but also in in dialogue with the regulator. It's quite interesting from a commercial perspective because um, you've got a slightly different client in the, involved. So you may have a very sophisticated blue chip client that's got an insurance division that helps them buy a business, but then right down to the sole trader at the end that maybe is buying direct. But also there's not to forget there's a role for the broker to play that they, they can actually provide guidance to the insured on what is a fair price for their renewal. So whilst it's not focusing on commercial at the moment, I think it does raise some interesting questions. Great. Thanks very much for that, John. Really, really useful. My thanks to, obviously, John and uh, to Nick and to Jerry. I thought that was a really interesting uh, roundup of, of what's going on right now. There are lots of other issues that we can tackle going forward. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and leave us a, a review. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.